from Asia Society Switzerland, this is State of Asia. Throughout the spring, we're bringing you brand new conversations with engaging minds on the issues shaping Asia and affecting us all. I'm your host, Serena Jung. Today, we welcome Amrita Narlikar. Professor Amrita Narlikar is the president of the German Institute for Global and Area Studies and professor of international relations. She's an economist and regular commentator of multilateral organizations and India in them. She's associated with institutes and think tanks all over the world and is co-chair of Task Force 3 of T20 this year, an advisory body of G20 made up of think tanks and academia. Amrita, thank you for joining us today. We want to talk about India and its foreign policy, both in the year of India's presidency of G20, as well as its general approach towards multilateralism. India is historically associated with non-alignment, but there seems to be a significant increase in India's willingness to engage internationally under the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi. With the G20 summit emphasizing on giving the Global South more voice, Prime Minister Modi wants to present India as a leading player in convening Western powers and developing countries. Can you share your thoughts on how India landed on that position? what journey it has gone through domestically and why that may or may not be the best place for India to find itself in. Thank you very much for having me on your program, Serena. It's wonderful to be having this conversation with you. So India has in fact historically played a leading role in advancing the cause of development. You mentioned non-alignment, but that was indeed one of its commitments. But it was also very active in several forums like the UN, the UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and development, like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, the predecessor of the WTO. And it punched way above its weight and it pushed very hard for the cause of development. And it worked together with other developing countries. And as its power and influence have risen, India has shown greater willingness, especially in recent years, to work more closely with the US and other Western players. So I would argue that India was always an international player. What we are seeing now is some greater willingness for it to coordinate more with the US, with the EU, strengthen bilateral relations with European players. Uh, for example, also work as a part of the Quad in the Indo-Pacific. But I would also emphasize that it has not given up its commitment to the Global South. And I am using air quotes here when I say Global South. And you see this, for example, in India's negotiating positions in the World Trade Organization today or indeed in its hosting of the Voice of the Global South Summit earlier this year. And this makes India very interesting. It's a key global player. It is a democracy that is engaging with the West increasingly on equal terms as its power has risen. But it's also a vital bridge connecting the so-called rest of the world and the West. And its global South identity sometimes makes it a difficult player for the West to engage with. But its democratic credentials, its economic credentials, its belonging to the global South should also make it a strategic partner for the US, for European players, 
a partner that is worth investing in and engaging with. Can I quickly ask why you're using quotation marks with the Global South? Of course. You know, this is a problem with, with many terms, whether you call it the third world or the developing world, whatever category you come up with, you always have some people coming and telling you, look, look it's very complicated, the Global South, it's very diverse. And you know, they have interests. And I mean, come on, yes, we know that. Now, and we know they're diverse, right? And in Germany, at least, there's a big discussion happening right now on don't call it the global south, don't call it the global south. Refer to the individual countries. And then they're coming up with other terms like call them middle powers, call them the fence sitters, call them all kinds of things. And so sometimes I try and be preemptive on this because I don't want to be mansplained to the global south. It's complicated. I know it's complicated and I know that they're diverse, but I will also say this is why I love your question, Serena. If countries from the world regions are willingly embracing the term, I think we should have a problem if the West constantly goes and says, it's complicated, there's no such thing as the global South. For heaven's sake, they just had a summit called the Voice of the Global South. So, you know, we can't constantly be denying agency to the global South. Working together with other developing countries is a source of power for India and for other developing countries. And we have seen this power in action in across multilateral fora, and we saw it in a very powerful way. For example, in the World Trade Organization, when we had the Doha Development Agenda, right? It was an organization that used to pride itself for not dealing with development issues, but trade issues. Back in the day, you'd be told, if you want to talk about development, go to the World Bank. We do trade. And that changed. Now, the agenda of the organization was changed. How? By developing countries working together as the global south. There is power, there is agency. And just denying that and saying they're all separate, they're all separate, they're complicated. I don't think that's very useful. India also joined the G7 meeting in Hiroshima this year. It is also presiding the Shanghai Cooperation Organization this year and will participate in the BRICS meeting later this year. Both multilateral organizations which are dedicated to and shaped by China and Russia. Can India continue for much longer to have its cake and eat it? I, I see it a little bit differently because on the one hand, the cause of development right, is very important to India. And this is where it does connect with China. If it were not so serious, it would be almost funny. The fact that China and India are often on the same page in the World Trade Organization, they should not be because security and trade are linked and India is facing a huge security threat on its borders from China, right? But India does not disengage from China. They put out joint proposals, they talk a similar language on special and differential treatment, right? And that's coming from the cause of developmentalism. On the other hand, India is a democracy that should be very worried about the authoritarian power on its border. The fact that India, now I will use the, these words, India sits on the fence, I use them deliberately right now in the context of your question, that India sits on the fence should also be seen as a failure of Western diplomacy. Because what the Europeans should be doing, what the EU should be doing, what European countries should be doing, what the US should be doing, what the UK should be doing, is trying very hard to make sure that India works together with other democracies and does not end up on the side of authoritarian powers at a time when we're facing a challenge from authoritarian powers in multiple ways, whether this is BRI, whether this is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, whether this is uh, what's happening in Xinjiang, 
uh, and so on and so forth, right? So the West should be working closely together with India. So it's a little bit of give and take, right? The more you have advances towards India, the more I would expect it to also respond. But what we usually get, as we did in the case of Ukraine, was a lot of disappointment and a lot of annoyance about why is India not voting with us? And it's a democracy and it should. If you know a little bit about India, you would not be surprised why India behaves the way that it does. I've also spoken in this format with uh, Huang Latu, who's a specialist on Southeast Asia. She also said that it's not a position that not anyone can afford to be in, to completely disengage or confront China. But it also is China is not going away, right? And you can't just wish it away by just saying uh, democracies should align and then the rest looks for themselves. You have been emphasizing that part, like India should play towards its status as a democracy. Also, when it comes to negotiating or forge alliances, criticizing even the pragmatic approach of hatching, would you have wished for a more explicit condemnation of Russia by India after the start of the Ukraine war? I don't know about the word condemnation. Definitely, I would have liked India to have spoken up strongly in favor of Ukraine and criticized the Russian invasion of Ukraine and also voted in a different way in uh, the UNSC, in the General Assembly, and so on and so forth, and not only India, but other, other developing countries that are democracies. But let me just stay on the subject of India. India has maneuvered itself, some argue, into a fine position. It's being wooed both by the EU and the US, as well as Russia. So this is not a bad position for India to be in. But if you take a closer look, I think India finds itself in a, in a tight spot. Its dependence on Russia for military supplies and a reliable supply matters given that India is in a very difficult neighborhood. But India's dependence on Russia has a tragic irony today because through its reluctance towards criticizing Russia on Ukraine, India may also be strengthening authoritarian China's hand. That's not going to be good for India because everybody looks at the Russian invasion of Ukraine within that geography. But you look at its global implications and how it could actually weaken Russia, strengthen authoritarian China, make Russia more dependent on China. That is going to be a huge problem in terms of the global balance of power. It's going to be a huge problem for India too. And a way out of this bind for India and others hoping for a more value-based diplomacy from the world's largest democracy, is a diversification of supply chains in strategically important sectors. And for this, you know, you need deepened EU-India cooperation, you need more US-India cooperation. And in the case of EU spe specifically, like you need it on trade as well as dual-use technology, infrastructure, security, and this will be crucial in getting India to speak up more. Let's stay on Europe. You're based in Hamburg, so uh, you have a close view. Uh, last year, the negotiations of a free trade agreement with the EU have been relaunched with India after the initial talks starting in 2007 came to a halt in 2013. Um, what are the main issues that blocked negotiations 10 years ago and what has changed since? A big change has been in the geopolitical climate. Uh, the recognition that uh, there is an authoritarian advance, democracies are under threat, democracies need to work closely together. Uh, sometimes China offers far better, not better, but cheaper uh, models of development, cheap infrastructure in the short run. The EU needs to do better 
in engaging developing countries. So that that's one change in the context. The other change in the context is the Modi government is much more business friendly and it is reform oriented, right? And so a lot of people think the EU or thought that the EU, India, FTA now would be a doddle. Now it would be really easy to do, but it's not going to be easy to do. Because one, there are very difficult issues still to be negotiated. Now, these include agriculture. India is not going to open up its agricultural market. The EU will also show reserve here. Then the EU wants access to India's market in non-agricultural market access area. India is not going to do that. India is going to be very difficult on this. It has always been difficult on this, and that's what a lot of EU business interests want. India is also a complicated country to work with in terms of regulations, right? And Modi has been reforming these. The Modi government has been reforming these and simplifying these, but there is more to be done. So even now, there are business groups in Europe, certain sectors in Europe in terms of big business, which have established production lines in China and know what to do with China. And then there's India, complicated democracy with federalism at work. And it's it's complicated, no doubt. And then on top of that, there's that constant issue of labor standards and environmental standards that the EU is always pushing for, right? And India is always resisting on. How do we get out of this? Because in my eyes, it's really important that these two powers come closer together. I would say that in the case of the EU, at one in an article, I've talked about how the EU and India are dancing a very clumsy tango. There are several problems, but one of them is that the EU sort of looks at these trade negotiations still in, in the context of trade and trade alone. Whereas what it should do is it should look at, it should be much more explicit in recognizing the geoeconomic imperatives for this. The minute it does that, it will be possible for the EU, it should be possible, at least it should be possible for the EU to make some concessions because the, those two issues are interlinked. But the, e, the, but the system, the, the, the institutional structures of the EU make this quite difficult. The EU lives in still somewhat in silos and the fact that it doesn't have a very strong foreign policy angle anyway, or a sec- and certainly not a security policy angle anyway. So that would be... I would say let's start talking more about geoeconomic issues as being necessary for recognizing the urgency of the deal and then also values that India is a democracy. And here I just gave you a critique of the EU, but now let me give you a critique of India. India sort of likes to right now speak the language of pragmatism, right? And at one point, the foreign minister of India was asked whose side is India is on? And he responded, India is on India's side. But in fact, it's a real pity that India is not owning its values. And those values are indeed democracy and pluralism and liberalism. And the more it does that, the more it will be, the easier it will become for itself to engage with the EU and embrace some of those values that it actually shares with the EU. But it's not doing that right now. And were geoeconomic concerns also the reason why India then not joined the regional comprehensive economic partnership, which would have been a trade framework with lower standards vis-a-vis WTO standards or other formats? Uh, so India got a lot of criticism from a variety of sources uh, for not signing on to, to RESAP. And in fact, for me, I think there are credible reasons why it didn't join RESAP, which is the centrality of China for this. So if you are serious about the geoeconomic threat, right, you really should not be doing trade as trade alone. 
And so RESAP to me is really one of those agreements that is in the old, old models of globalization, not just the old, but the old, old, which just says trade more and you'll get good things. We know that's just not true. You know, we don't, it's not Wandel, Deutsch, Handel, change through trade. It has not worked. We need to be paying attention to a whole bunch of other issues that go hand in hand with trade. And it, India is often very reluctant to do this in the context of standards, now the labor standards, environmental standards. But the fact that it did not sign on to RESAP shows that it is taking something like security quite seriously. India is one of the few countries that is still growing at impressive speed. The IMF estimates its GDP to expand by 6%. Analysts expect it to become the world's third largest economy by the end of the decade. And it should be the most populated country in the world by now with 1.4 billion people. Yet job growth is weak and the informal sector is still vast. Moreover, India continues to be seen to be a difficult player in the WTO and, as you mentioned earlier, not the easiest of trading partners. Tell us how you view the changes and continuities in India's foreign economic policy and where do you see the opportunities and where the risks? India's agenda for economic reform since 2014 already has several achievements to its credit. The goods and services tax has sought to unify and regularize India's complex and fragmented system. There's been a whole bunch of reforms. So setting up 355 million Indian citizens with bank accounts for the first time, universal healthcare, improved infrastructure and access, supporting entrepreneurship through small loans and more. And you're right, right? Despite the hits that the world economy has taken, there continues to be optimism about India's growth story, India's resilience. It doesn't mean that it's all there, right? India still got huge tasks at hand. So for example, deep structural reform is hard to do. And this includes agriculture, manufacturing, labor laws, regulations, right? So it's not that India's achieved all that it needs to achieve on economic reform. But the trend, the directions overall are look promising. But, you know, you take the case of trade. India's negotiating positions in the WTO have shown remarkable continuity over the decades. And these include persistent proclivities to protect its own market, to espouse the cause of developmentalism, not only for itself, but a large group of developing countries, insist on special and differential treatment, and to do so with bargaining strategies that involve reluctance to make concessions. So even though Modi's, Modi has had a business-friendly approach, As far as India's narratives and negotiation positions in the WTO are concerned, not that much has seems to have changed. But this is where, again, India becomes really interesting because, you know, on the one hand, like the fact that India's narrative has not changed since Modi comes to power suggests some of the limitations of the reformist agenda. But it's also the fact that the world has changed so much that some of India's old narratives have acquired new relevance. And this is where we again look at the issue of how interdependence can be weaponized. So the fact that those very ties of economic integration that were supposed to bind countries into zones of peace, they can be used and abused for security purposes. You know, that countries can be held hostage, as we saw in the early months of the pandemic, for key medical supplies. The fact that all this can be done via trade links And this is a world where India's caution in trade liberalization and market opening now acquires a new relevance. Will India have the last laugh on this? You know, India was cautious then. 
India's cautious now. Now suddenly everybody's like ranging from the US to at least parts of the EU are urging caution on this rampant hyper-globalization that was at work. Will India get the last laugh? Well, that really depends very much on what it does. So if India retreats into self-reliance, it will risk undoing decades of growth and poverty reduction. Now, if it goes into self-reliance isolationism, what it needs to do is to work closely with like-minded partners, democracies in the West and also the global South, to build secure and sustainable supply chains rather than try and go it alone. To close, I'd like to look forward. You're a part of the T20, the broad-based network of think tanks and academia, which provides a policy advice to the group of 20. What kind of multilateral order does India want and what should its role in it be? And what would you advise its leadership on how to get there? Let me just refer to the task force that I'm a part of on life resilience, values, and well-being. Let's talk about, you know, given that this is the Indian presidency, what unique approaches could India bring to the G20 negotiating table and beyond in terms of global governance? I could give you quite a lot on the importance of values, how values and interests are reflexive. And this idea is ingrained in much of India's ancient thought that thrives today. I could tell you about how India is going to continue to push for greater voice for the global south, distributive justice, food security. But instead of doing all that, let me just speak about one area that is very dear to me. So much is made of family and society-oriented Asian values, right? That Asian values are family and community-based. And they're somehow fundamentally different from individual-oriented universal values. Now, that's sort of the general understanding. Academics have written about this. Policymakers have embraced this. There's Asian values, and then there's Western slash universal values. Traditional India, however, offers quite a different and a more liberal perspective on this issue than even Western variants of liberalism by according individual personality individual rights to all creatures. And I'll give you a Sanskrit verse. I am nijaha paroveti ganana laghu chetasam udara charita nam tuvasudhaiva kutumbakam. And that means, this is mine, this is yours. Only mean-minded people indulge in such bean counting. For the generous-minded, the entire earth is one family. And this inclusive approach seems to bring together all peoples of the planet. In fact, India's approach is more inclusive and it extends to not only humans, but all our more than human friends, the more than human beings, the animal kingdom with which we share this planet, the animals, the trees, uh, the creatures of the sea. And so India's motto for G20 seems to recognize this subtle, but in my eyes, crucially important difference that it's not only people-centric, it's not anthropocentric. And the wording of the G20 motto is one earth, one family, one future. This non-anthropocentric appreciation of family, welfare, justice, rights, is really deeply enshrined in ancient Indian texts. And it flourishes to this day in the verses that we are taught, that I have grown up with. And I think this, this non-anthropocentric perspective is very different from Fridays for Future demonstrations. 
that were prompted by Greta Thunberg's climate activism. Because in contrast to children in the West demanding that the planet be saved for their future, or adults appealing to intergenerational justice on behalf of their children and their children's children. The Indian approach highlights the importance of trans-species justice, and it applies to the cause of biodiversity not only for the sake of the preservation of the particular species, but to save the lives of individual animals within species. Introducing a less anthropocentric perspective into the G20 would not only help alleviate the suffering of our more-than-human friends globally, but it would also have a positive impact on multiple cognate human concerns. You know, be this public health and the dangers to this via zoonotic jumping or sustainable development. So that's one idea that I think is a really interesting one with huge implications on giving us a better world, a more secure world, a more sustainable world that could come out of India's G20. Professor Amrita Narlikar, thank you very much. Thank you, Serena. I'm now joined by my colleagues and co-hosts of this podcast, Nico Luchsinger and Rem Kotanis. Hi. Hello. Hi. I've just been talking to Amrita Narlikar and I thought what is most striking is the point she made on diversifying the supply chains and that de-risking comes at a cost. And I think what she meant is not um, only money, but also eventually to cut India some slack if people <laughs> if people want to have them at the table. You've, you've phrased this exactly um, the right way. I also found it very notable that I think the way she phrased it was the US kind of like stuck sort of in just looking at this as a trade issue while it should sort of look at it sort of through a broader geoeconomic lens and supposedly then maybe don't insist on kind of enforcing its trade rules and policies so strictly because it sort of helps kind of like serve the greater good. Exactly what what I think you said, what this means is that the EU and India, and she did, you know, to be fair, also offer some criticism of the of the Indian position. The EU and India should move more closely together despite certain differences. She talked about trade, but I think obviously sort of the democracy issue is maybe an issue in, in there as well, because sort of it makes sense in, in the broader geopolitical context. And what I find interesting about this statement is that on the face of it, I, I would agree, but it's also slippery slope. It has a little bit of the kind of like picking the lesser evil ring to it in a way, right? So if we're actually, we'd actually prefer to be it differently, but we kind of have to now, even though we find there to be flaws in India's trade policy and democracy to sort of gloss over them because basically we don't have a choice. I was kind of thrown back to last November when we hosted uh, Raja Mohan here in Zurich with his State of Asia address. And, and one of, I think, the central cries he almost had in his address was, Europe, please get involved more with us uh, as India, but also with the region Asia as a whole. Um, we can't have it just being the US and China. But now yeah, Amrita Nalikar, she says, well, yeah, do get involved with us more. India is a logical, strategic and, and economic partner for Europe, given shared values and things like that, even though you can, like you do, Nico, here, discuss how shared those values are in all aspects. But then, yeah, she also said, well, but India is consistent in its position in, in not wanting to give any way in how it cares about labor issues, environmental issues. And I re didn't really get how then she sees Europe get closer to India and the shared values they allegedly have without India making any concessions. She also a bit earlier talked about India and China having in a way shared values sort of in the context of the WTO. You know, they kind of are on, on, the, on the same page and actually work together. And so one you know, sort of interesting and possible takeaway from this is that this is 
at least in this very moment in time, the very specific sort of place that India is in, it's kind of like an in-between place, right? It does have a developmental perspective that maybe puts it closer to China and and, and maybe, you know, the, the global south. But then, you know, sort of it has maybe geoeconomic preferences that sort of, you know, and, and, and certain values that put it closer to the EU um, and the US. So it's in a way, maybe an uncomfortable in-between place because it doesn't neatly fit, you know, into a category. But of course, it can also be very powerful to be sort of in this nexus um, and to have not just overlapping interests, but also overlapping values with many different actors in many different areas. And my reading of the foreign policy of the current Indian administration is exactly that I think they're, they're trying to leverage this. Like they're trying to sort of leverage the being in between, being a sought after balancing power. But it does, as I think she correctly pointed out, make their foreign policy somewhat pragmatic. It's not led by values as much as it's led by sort of balancing out the relationships uh, that India has. Which is what you see of many countries in the region, in, in Southeast Asia, we, we've heard that before, that they are being led by a far less value-driven foreign policy uh, rather than just being very pragmatic. If for each situation, what position do we take? There's not one gospel to which they adhere. They just take it situation by situation. And that's why I, I followed up with the RCEP question, right? It, it would have been a trade framework with lower standards um, that India could have also for once maybe sealed the deal but then they pulled off and and but she i think she rightly pointed out that their concerns this being maybe um too much framed by china not sure if i buy the chinese centrality argument here as such it's at the end of the day it was an asean initiative um and there's some other countries you know notably japan or south korea who i would argue have at least as many concerns about chinese dominance in the region as india has that did not mean that they didn't join so i'm I'm not sure if this may have been a factor, but I'm not sure if this can explain the entirety of India's behavior vis-a-vis -vis RCEP. One thing I did bump up on is that she said that India sitting on the fence, it was in the context of the Ukraine war, was also a failure of Western diplomacy. And while I'm not necessarily here to defend Western diplomacy per se, ironically, it seems that that statement also takes away agency from India, right? Because I think, you know, India is the largest country in the world, whether it sits on the fence on something or how it positions itself in a way, I think cannot be sort of explained by you know, the behavior of the diplomacy of other countries, but has to be explained by preferences and interests and values that the country itself has. And I think there are many, from an Indian perspective, many, you know, quote unquote, good reasons to sit on the fence. I just don't think that it's all due to Western diplomacy not having good India enough. That's all for this episode of State of Asia. In the next episode, out in two weeks, my colleague Nico Luchsinger will talk with Evan Feigenbaum of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, whose career has spanned work on three major regions of Asia. Be sure to catch that conversation by subscribing to State of Asia in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on the many events we organize in person and online, subscribe to our newsletter. A link is in the show notes, just like the links to information on how to support us and become a member. State of Asia is an Asia Society Switzerland podcast. This episode was produced by Ram Kortanis and hosted by me, Serena Jung. Till next time. <laughs>